Welcome to Truth 101 with Dr. Greg Ammons, a podcast which examines tenets of the Christian faith in a systematic way. Dr. Ammons serves as a local church pastor and professor of theology in the undergraduate, master's, and doctoral levels, bringing years of experience into the theological arena. Now, here's Dr. Ammons. Why do I believe there are no errors in the Bible when there are a lot of critics around the world who say that there are? Hi, I'm Dr. Greg Ammons. Welcome to Truth 101, a podcast where we look at the Christian faith, doctrines of the Christian faith, and all aspects of Christian living from a systematic perspective. I'm glad you joined us today. We're now into our second episode, part two of the inerrancy of Scripture. I believe that the, that the Bible teaches that every word of the Bible is true and that God teaches that and affirms that as well. And so in this episode we're going to look at some common challenges to inerrancy by critics around the world today. Six current challenges to inerrancy I want to give to you that uh, critics say that the word inerrant is not a good word to use for Scripture. I believe that it is, but let me give you these, the uh, challenges today or the objections to inerrancy of Scripture. First of all, let's go back. Our la- in our last episode, we talked about the definition by Wayne Grudem uh, in his book, Systematic Theology, the second edition, a good book on, on a systematic theology, Wayne Grudem says the definition of inerrancy is it means that the scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. Inerrancy of scripture means that scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. So with that working definition of inerrancy, let's look at Six current challenges to inerrancy. Let me give you some objections to it uh, by critics around the world. First objection, number one. They say that the Bible is only authoritative for matters of, quote, faith and practice, end quote. Now, this is one of the most frequent objections to inerrancy that's out there. It's raised by those people who say, that the purpose of the Bible is to teach us in areas that concern faith and practice only. And they say that in these areas that relate to our beliefs and to our ethical conduct practice, these are the areas the Bible speaks to. Now this position would allow for the possibility of other false statements in Scripture For example, in other areas like historical details or scientific facts. And they say that that the the Bible does not instruct us in those areas. And since about the mid-1960s, the advocates of this view have been willing to say that the Bible is, quote, infallible, but they don't like using the word inerrant. And you still have a lot of those people around today. I'm comfortable using the word inerrant as well as infallible. Let me have some, uh, let, me, let me respond to this objection. The Bible repeatedly affirms that all Scripture is profitable for us, 2 Timothy 
And it tells us that all Scripture is God-breathed. It tells us that the Bible is completely pure in Psalms 12, uh, the 12th Psalm, verse 6. It tells us that the Word is perfect in Psalm 119.96. tells us that the Word is true in Proverbs 30, verse 5. And the Bible does not make any restriction on the kinds of subjects to which it speaks truthfully. The New Testament contains further affirmations of the reliability of all parts of Scripture, not just those relating to faith and practice. For example, Acts 24, 14, the Apostle Paul says that he worships God, quote, believing everything laid down by the law and prophets, uh, and written down by the law and written in the prophets. Luke 24, 25, Jesus says, the disciples are, quote, foolish ones because they are slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. He, he doesn't limit it only to faith and practice. Romans 15, 4, Paul says that whatever was written in the Old Testament was written for our instruction. He doesn't say just matters of faith and practice. So as you begin to look, we can begin to examine the way the New Testament authors trust even the smallest historical details of the Old Testament authors, you see no intention to separate out matters of faith and practice. To say there's somehow a recognizable category of affirmations or to imply that statement, statements not in the category need not be trusted or thought to be inerrant. So in other words, you don't see any sense from the New Testament writers that the Old Testament is indeed false or wrong. In fact, no detail was too insignificant to be used for the instruction of New Testament Christians. There is no indication that they thought of a certain category of scriptural statements that were unreliable and untrustworthy. You don't get any sense that the New Testament writers were saying, well, the historical details of the Old Testament and the scientific statements of the Old Testament, yeah, you can't really believe those. You don't get any sense of that. You get only the sense from the New Testament writers that everything that's there in all subjects is totally true. The whole purpose of Scripture is to say everything it does on whatever subject Every one of God's words in Scripture was deemed by Him to be important for us. So God issues severe warnings to anybody who would take away from the Word, add to the Word. Deuteronomy 4, Deuteronomy 12, Revelation 22 all says that we cannot add to God's words or take away from God's words. They're all there for a, for a purpose. Everything stated in Scripture is there because God intended for it to be there. He does nothing unintentionally. So, the first objection in errancy makes a wrong use, I believe, a summary uh, of, of a summary and thereby incorrectly attempting to impose artificial limits on the kinds of things God speaks to us about. We don't have to limit it to faith and practice. Here's objection number two. There are a lot of critics today that say that the term inerrancy relating to the Bible is a poor term. 
they say inerrancy is too precise and that it denotes a kind of absolute scientific precision that we necessarily don't want to claim for Scripture is what they say. They say the Bible contains everyday speech of ordinary people. It contains round numbers, free quotations. Uh, so they believe that, that the term inerrancy is, is poor to use concerning Scripture. But those people who make this objection, uh, they believe that, that it's probably an inappropriate term for us to insist upon. Well, I disagree. Let me, let me make a couple of statements why. First of all, the scholars who have used the term inerrancy have used it for hundreds of years. And they have always allowed for the limitations that attach to speech in ordinary language. They've always allowed for that. In no case has the term been used to denote a kind of absolute modern scientific precision by any responsible rep representative of the inerrancy position. So therefore, those who raise this objection to the term are not giving careful enough attention to the way in which inerrancy has been used in theological discussions for more than a hundred years. Not only that, I think it has, has to be noted that we often use non-biblical terms sometimes to summarize biblical teachings. Let me give you an example. The word trinity does not occur in Scripture, but the concept is definitely there. The word incarnation is never used in the Bible, but the concept is there. Rapture is never used in the Bible, but the concept is there. So both of these terms, all three of these terms, Trinity, Incarnation, Rapture, are helpful because they allow us to summarize in one word biblical concepts that are there and can enable us to discuss a biblical teaching more easily. I think it should also be noted that no other single word has been proposed which says as clearly what we want to affirm about the Bible as does the word inerrancy. It does it quite well. Uh, there seems to be no need to discontinue using it just because some people say it's a poor term. It's a term that's been recognized for a long time by theologians in discussing Scripture that the Bible does indeed contain no errors. Here's objection number three. Some critics say we have no inerrant manuscripts. So therefore, talk about an inerrant Bible is misleading. Now those people who make this objection, they, they point to the fact that inerrancy has always been claimed for the first or the original copies of the biblical documents. And none of those survive. We only have copies of copies of what Moses said, copies of copies of what Paul said or Peter said or John said. What's the benefit then, critics say, of placing such great importance on a doctrine that applies to manuscripts nobody has? I've, I've heard this objection on many occasions. But in replying to this objection, I think it's first noteworthy to state that over 99% of the words of the Bible 
we know exactly what the original manuscript said. There's no doubt. It's far over 99%. And even for those many verses where there are textual variants, that's just another phrase that meaning different words in different ancient copies of the same verse, even when you have a few of those verses that have textual variants, the correct decision is really pretty clear on what it means because the context tells you what it means. So there are very, very few places where the textual variant is difficult to evaluate and come to determine the meaning of the, of the passage. And in these small percentage of cases where there is significant uncertainty about what the original text said, the general sense of the sentence usually gives quite clear context whenever you go back to the Hebrew and the Greek translations. So Hebrew, the Old Testament written in Hebrew, parts of it in Aramaic, New Testament written in Greek. When you go back and look at those, there really, there really is no dispute at all. So it's pretty clear uh, that to say that, that there are no inerrant manuscripts, so therefore we can't talk about in inerrancy, it's misleading. Not misleading at all. Because 99% of the words that are used, very clear what it means. And where there are a few textual variants, the context can tell you, or the original Hebrew and Greek can tell you. Now, Wayne Grudem gives an, an illustration about this principle. Whenever he says, imagine that the original copy of the United States Constitution is lost. It's currently housed in the National Archives building in Washington, D.C. But let's say, for example, an earthquake or a hurricane hits or something of that, uh, that magnitude, and the original copy of the U.S. Constitution was lost. Would we be able then to determine the exact words of the original Constitution? Of course we would. There are thousands of accurate copies of it. And we could compare them, and where they are agreed, we would have confidence that we know what the original said. So likewise, though we don't have the original copy of, say, the book of John, we do know with a high degree of confidence what the original copy said. Objection number four. Critics of inerrancy say that the biblical writers accommodated their messages in some minor details to the false ideas current in their day and affirmed or taught that those ideas were in an incidental way. Let me give an example. A little confusing. Let me give an example. The objection to inerrancy in, in this matter is slightly different from the one that would restrict inerrancy to matters of faith and practice, but it's, it's kind of related to it. Those people who hold to this objection argue that it would have been very difficult for the biblical writers to communicate with the people of their day if they had tried to correct all the false historical and scientific information believed during that day. Therefore, they claim when the biblical writers were attempting to make a larger point, they sometimes incidentally affirmed false ideas 
that were believed in that day, but that were inaccurate. Now, Daniel Fuller, um, he's one who represents this view. And Daniel Fuller writes uh, in an article from 1967, a very controversial article, he proposed that God, quote, deliberately accommodated his language in non-revelational matters to the way the original hearers viewed the world about them so he could enhance biblical truth. Well, he gives an example. For example, in Matthew 13, 32, Jesus said that the mustard seed is the smallest of all the seeds. And Daniel Fuller said that the mustard seed was not really the smallest of all the seeds, yet Jesus referred to it as such because the Jews of the day thought the mustard seed was the smallest of all the seeds. And the mustard seed denoted the smallest thing that the eye could detect. Were Jesus not to have accommodated himself to the Jewish mind of the day, but to have drawn instead upon his omnipotence to state that was not the case, he would have failed to communicate with his hearers the all-important matters of faith and the kingdom of God. That's the argument. Let me give a couple of objections. First of all, uh, God that saying that God is the Lord of human language is accurate. And to say that God can use human language to communicate perfectly without having to affirm any falsehood that may have been held by the people during that day or the time of the writing of Scripture is is totally correct. This objection to inerrancy essentially denies God's effective lordship over human language. God is greater than any human language. He didn't have to condescend to falsehood to teach truth. A second statement, we must respond that, that such accommodation by God to our misunderstandings would imply that God had acted contrary to his character. Because remember, he's the God that never lies, according to Titus 1, 2 and Numbers 23, 19 and Hebrews 6, 18. God doesn't lie. It's not helpful to divert attention from this difficulty by repeated emphasis on the gracious condescension of God to speak on our level. God does not condescend to speak our language the language of human beings and accommodate falsehood in order to get that across. No passage of Scripture teaches that He condescends to us to act contrary to His moral character, the God who cannot lie. He is never said to be able to condescend so as to affirm something false. He doesn't do that. It's not what His character is about. So, really, it's not necessary to agree with Daniel Fuller that Jesus affirmed a falsehood when he said the mustard seed is the smallest of all the seeds. If you remember, one important biblical principle of biblical interpretation is that you understand words to mean what the original hearers would have taken them to mean at that time and in that culture. But not only that, Fuller's attempt to separate revelational matters or truthful matters from other matters, not always truthful, is contradicted by passages 
cited at the beginning of the chapter in Matthew 13 that he failed to mention because Jesus said at the beginning of Matthew 13, and Fuller doesn't say this, Jesus claimed every word of God is true, not just the words of God about religious topics. Objection number five. Some people say that inerrancy overemphasizes the divine aspect of Scripture and neglects the human aspect of Scripture. Now, this is a more general objection by some critics, but it's made by those to say, well, you're over, inerrancy overemphasizes the divine aspect, but you have humans who are very uh, frail and humans that are faulty and make mistakes, and they're the ones pinning the word. So therefore, inerrancy is a, is a poor word. Well, I disagree with that objection, obviously. I, I agree Scripture has both a human element and a divine element to it. That, that's, that's clear. And we must give attention to both. However, those people who make this objection almost invariably go on to insist that the true human aspect must include the presence of errors in the Bible. Why? We can respond that though the Bible is fully human in that it was written by human beings using their own language, the activity of God in overseeing the writing of Scripture and causing it to be also His words means that it's different from any other human writing. It does not include error. And that is exactly the point made by a sinful, greedy, disobedient Balaam in Numbers 23, 19. He was saying God is true and His words, He does not lie. God's speech through human beings is different from the ordinary speech of human beings, of men, because God is not a man that He should lie, according to Numbers 23, 19. So, it's simply not true that all human speech, all human writing must contain errors because they're human. I make, I make statements every day that are correct and I'm human. Every human does not have to make incorrect statements just because they're human. A very poor objection to inerrancy. And then number six, the final one we'll look at today, the final objection to, to inerrancy of the Bible, according to critics. Some critics just flat out say there are very clear errors in the Bible. That's what some critics say. They just say there are clearly some errors in the Bible, either stated or implied by most people who deny inerrancy is that there is the conviction that they have that there are errors in Scripture. Well, in every case, the first answer to that should be, show me where they are. I've had people throughout the course of my ministry say, Pastor, there are, there are clear errors in the Bible. And I say, okay, show me one. Point them out to me. And in almost every case, they cannot. Well, I can't think of any right now. I'll have to look them up. 
and for the most case, they never get back with me. It's surprising how frequently one finds this objection is made by people who have little or no idea where the specific errors are, but who believe there are errors because they've been told there are errors in the Bible. Occasionally, people will come and say, well, okay, here, what about this? Here is an error. And they'll mention one or a passage or so where they claim there is a false statement in Scripture. But in these cases, it's important that we look at the biblical text itself. Look at it very closely. And if we believe that the Bible is indeed inerrant, we should be eager and certainly not afraid to inspect every text of the Bible in minute detail. I'm, I'm not afraid to do that because the Bible is inerrant. It, it can stand on its own. doesn't need me to defend it. I, I'm, I'm willing to look at any text because our expectation upon close inspection of every text will show there to be no error at all. There are a few texts where knowledge of Hebrew and Greek may be necessary to find a solution. And those who do not have first-hand access to these languages, you can, you, you can look at, at technical commentaries, you can go to someone who has the training, and you can ascertain the meaning behind. Uh, sometimes translation gets lost from Hebrew and Greek into English, and what words, what they meant by words in, in, in their day do not mean the same to us today. And so that's why you need to carefully inspect what is the Bible actually saying. And whenever you begin to examine passages like this, it becomes very clear that there's a possibility these, these particular problems are solved. In fact, it should be noted that there are many evangelical Bible scholars today who say that they do not presently know of any problem text of the Bible that has no satisfactory solution. There really are no new problems in Scripture. The Bible is, in its entirety is over 1,900 years old and the quote problem texts have been there all along. All throughout the history of the church, there's been a firm belief in the inerrancy of Scripture, but they've always had the problem texts. So those texts didn't bother the church fathers of the past to use the word inerrancy. And those, quote, problem texts don't deter me from using the word inerrancy because we have the highly competent biblical scholars for hundreds of years who've read and studied and find no difficulty in holding to the doctrine of inerrancy. And I believe that should give us confidence as well that the solution of any kind of, quote, problem text in the Bible is definitely available. And that the word inerrancy is entirely consistent with exactly what Scripture teaches and with exactly what the Bible is. Well, no doubt, I affirm the inerrancy, not just the infallibility of the Bible, but the inerrancy of Scripture itself. God has given to you and me a, a word that is totally reliable, not just on matters of faith and practice, but on all matters, totally reliable, totally true, because it comes from, descends to us from a God who cannot lie. 
Well, I hope this has been helpful to you. Join us next time whenever we continue this 600 series talking about the clarity of Scripture and answering the question, is it possible that we can fully know and understand what the Bible says? God bless you. We'll see you next time. You have been listening to Truth 101 with Dr. Greg Ammons. We hope you have enjoyed today's teaching. For more information on recent sermons by Dr. Ammons, go to www.fbcgarland.org and join us next time for Truth 101.